0: This is Chatter. I'm Shane Harris. This week, journalist Jim Popkin on Anna Montez, America's most dangerous female spy.
1: You know, I make the argument that she's really one of the most dangerous women spies in U.S. history, but but, um, but also just one of the most damaging spies, period. Say what you will about her crime. She has done hard time. She lived close to Squeaky Fromm of Manson family fame, an Al-Qaeda terrorist, and she described it as living in an insane asylum. You know, I have letters that she wrote in prison much more recently. She is not apologetic. She has not changed her stripes at all. She continues to justify what she did and why she spied.
0: Jim Popkin, welcome to Chatter. Thanks for being here.
1: Thank you so much. Great to be here. And you're
0: in the studio. We are in the studio together. We rarely get to do these in the studio these days, so I'm, I'm glad that we can actually be face-to-face. Absolutely. This is great. Um, so we're talking on, like, this is an auspicious week. Uh, you have a new book that just came out yesterday. We are talking on... Wednesday, January 4th, for people paying attention at home. Uh, The book is Codename Blue Wren, The True Story of America's Most Dangerous Female Spy and the Sister She Betrayed. Uh, And that spy, people may remember this name, but I'm suspecting a lot of people might not, It was a woman named Anna Montez who spied for Cuba and is slated to be released from prison this week, right?
1: Yeah, amazing. Uh, After more than 21 years in jail, She's scheduled to get out this weekend as early as
0: Friday. Wow. Wow. And so she's been serving time. She's in Texas now.
1: Yeah. She's at the Carswell facility uh, in Fort Worth.
0: Got it. And she was a defense intelligence agency Analyst on Cuba. Um, We're going to get into her background and and, and what she did. Um, Let's actually start kind of at the end of her story for people who may not be familiar with Ana Montes or remember the name, but she she has been locked up for more than two decades. Remind us who she was and why she went to prison. Sure.
1: So Ana Montes uh, first is an American woman. She grew up in Topeka, Kansas, and then just outside Baltimore. And went to school at UVA and then um, went to graduate school in D.C. at at Hopkins at at SICE um, and got radicalized there. She – I don't want to skip too far ahead, but she ended up at, as you said, Shane, at the DIA, the Defense Intelligence Agency. And I always need to explain a little bit what that is.
0: Yeah, for people who don't – it's not the CIA.
1: Right. But it's – in a way, it's the CIA for the military. They do intelligence reports – um, on militaries around the world. And they're the ones, in fact, right after 9-11 that had plans for if we were to invade Afghanistan, here's where we would go and other countries as well. So it's a very important um, agency today. They have about 16,000 employees. So it's a, it's a big mm-hmm. deal. So Anna uh, joined the DIA. No one knew it at the time, but she was already a fully recruited Cuban spy at that moment, and she stayed with them for 17 years, nearly 17 years, rose up the ranks, was incredibly successful as an analyst at DIA and really one of the government's top Cuba experts, and uh, you know, unfortunately was sharing this classified information the entire time with Cuba, um, and we'll get into it with her family, but it's an amazing story because her her family, four of her family members, worked for the FBI during this entire period.
0: Amazing. The people who are the Bureau, of course, the one that is hunting for the mole that they think exists that's spying for Cuba. Right. At this time, and it's their sister. As, 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 the, as the lead analyst for DIA and Cuba, talk a little bit about what she did, what her responsibilities were, and what access that gave her to information that she shared with Cuba.
1: She started her career focusing on um, El Salvador and Nicaragua. And that's important in the context because she was really opposed to the Reagan-era policies in Central America. So she started that way, worked her way up, won all kinds of accolades and awards, and ultimately ended up as a Cuba analyst. And that meant that she was responsible for understanding the military, the politics in Cuba, and really, uh, you know, a ground level view of what their capabilities were. It's, it's helpful to do that if you have a back door and you're getting information from the Cubans <laughs> the entire time. So she was a very successful analyst and thought to be, you know, one of the best in, in the nation within the U- U.S. government and was called somewhat derisively the queen of Cuba for her knowledge base uh, of all things Cuba.
0: Mm. And so, so she really is sort of the point person for DIA in that regard and would have had access to, I mean, some of the most classified information, if not the top classified information that we had on the Cuban military, the Cuban capabilities, that kind of thing.
1: Yeah, she, um, she had legal access and, you know, almost carte blanche access To classified information, not just that was the purview of the DIA, but also CIA and many other agencies. They had um, an electronic system, the acronym was SAFE, S-A-F-E, that gathered up raw intel from around the uh, intelligence world. And she had legal and permissible access to that. What, um, What she would do and what she was masterful at was taking a look at this data every day, all kinds of classified memos and raw intel, and memorizing it. She had a good memory, not off the charts, but a good memory, and she worked at it. She had I, I found a book of hers at her sister's house on improving your memory. And um, she used that um, you know to great effect. She basically had two jobs. She had her day job, which would be at DIA. She'd get there at 9, stay till 5 like clockwork she'd work right through lunch at her desk, reading, reading, memorizing. She didn't take documents out of the building, unlike, say, a Robert Hansen, the the FBI agent turned Russian spy. She kept it almost entirely in her head. Then her night job began when she got back to her apartment in, in the Cleveland Park area, D.C. And there she would type in her notes from everything she'd learned that day that she found relevant into her Toshiba laptop and it was encrypted and she'd put it on disks and then every couple weeks she would take that and pass it to a Cuban handler at a restaurant in DC. So it was a very efficient way to transmit massive amounts of classified data to the Cubans on a regular basis. She was really good at her job.
0: And you have to be really, I find this part fascinating about her character, that the level of... I guess discipline and commitment that you'd have to have to not only just, I mean, first of all, to to commit espionage, but to sit there memorizing these documents and to go home and kind of spit them out again. And they were fairly accurate, right? I mean, she was doing a good job of transmitting the information she memorized accurately.
1: One of the things the Cubans liked about her was that she had the kind of seniority and, and smarts to be able to separate what was truly important from what she learned because you, know, you could just spit back all kinds of uh, raw intel that was not that interesting. But she had the, the, you know, the knowledge base to figure out this is truly important and this will help you. And so there was a lot of analysis that she did both for the U.S. and for the Cubans. She was really an analyst for the, the Cubans as well in terms of what she perceived to be truly important for them.
0: So she could tell them things, in other words, it wasn't just here's what we know about what you're doing and how we're collecting information about your military and your secrets, but she could sort of lend her expertise in these matters to them. Precisely, yes. Yeah, that's amazing. So talk you mentioned when she when she's in school and she gets radicalized. Let's talk about a little bit about where where that begins for her before she actually gets recruited by the Cuban government. What's her experience like that that turns her Kind of, I guess, we, I guess we would call her, you know, a, what, a socialist radical? Is that the best way to sort of to think about her and on the spectrum?
1: Yeah, I think so. Uh, but let me let me pull back just a little bit and talk about her family yeah, for yeah. a second.
0: Yeah,
1: Her uh, father, Alberto, was a, a physician. He was a doctor. Um, and he started off with the U.S. Army. He's born in, in Puerto Rico, very bright guy um, and a very good student got a scholarship, went to school in the U.S., and ended up as a physician um, first in in Germany, and that's actually where Anna and her sister Lucy were born, on a military base. Uh, They come to the U.S., um, and they first kind of land in Topeka, Kansas. Mm -hmm. That's where Anna spends her early life. But it's important to me to think of her earliest impression of her father in a military uniform, He ultimately retired as a colonel in the army and became a psychiatrist. He's a Freudian psychiatrist. Um, But in the army, he was a physician. Her father was a very difficult, brilliant but difficult guy, who was both physically and uh, emotionally abusive to the kids, and not just their family. He had a second wife, and the pattern continued with the second family. he, he would beat the kids with a belt. He had a, a nasty temper and was mentally abusive. One quick anecdote, Anna had asthma as a child and was allergic to everything from Christmas trees to pollen, et cetera. And she was about seven and having an attack. And her father brought her into the room, two chairs across from each other, and she's gasping for breath, and he decided to try to treat her as a a psychiatrist uh, and to calm her down that way, but without helping her medical condition. And Sister Lucy, who's just uh, um, about a year and a half younger than Anna, is watching this and watching her sister gasp for breath, and it was... A show of dominance and control, not parental love. And that's just an, an, an example of how the father treated them. They, they also just lived in fear of him because he would get the belt out quite a lot, slap them. It, it continued through teenage years. So Anna grew up with a, you know, kind of a love hatred of her father who was in the military. And I think that really had an influence on her. Um, Later, uh, and I I didn't mention her mother. Her mother's name is Amelia, very, very bright and accomplished woman. Uh, Later went to work for the U.S. government in a variety of jobs in the Baltimore area. But really smart, well-read, good writer. Uh, Politically liberal, but not to the the extent that Anna was. Right, right, right. Um, Anna went to the University of Virginia, and that was important for her because her junior year, she spent it in Madrid mm-hmm. during a period of, you know, kind of social upheaval in, in Spain.
0: This would have been like in the 70s?
1: Correct. She met um, a lot of pretty radicalized folks there at the time, the Spaniards. She also fell in love with an Argentinian named Ricardo, who was a, a kind of revolutionary himself. And they challenged each other. I interview a friend of Anna's who was there on this junior year abroad and <clears throat> she's also an American but of Puerto Rican descent and she said it was intense and Anna was conflicted. She wanted to be one of the cool kids and kind of a revolutionary but she's was an American. Her dad was in the military and she was kind of caught in the middle between these worlds. But that was very important for her. It it f- helped to shape her politics. So that's college, right? Young young person. Then she joined the Justice Department. She was in the Freedom of Information Act office, but she had a clearance, at the security clearance at that point. And then she decided to go to graduate school. Her graduate school was uh, with Hopkins. It's called SICE, their International Studies School. renowned school, yeah. Yes, not far from here on, on uh, yeah. Massachusetts Avenue. and. It, it's, it's the Reagan years. Uh, Reagan is meddling in Central America in, you know, a number of conflicts, and it was extremely upsetting to her and many, many of her classmates. So that was kind of the environment at SAIS at the time. And to get back to your question, how did she get radicalized and then recruited? What happened at SAIS was she met a woman named Marta Velazquez, Marta, really bright, accomplished woman, born in Puerto Rico, educated at Princeton, Georgetown Law School, and then CICE. Imagine those tuition bills! Amazing. <laughs> and while she's at CICE, um, she meets Anna, and Anna's outspoken about her views, as most of the students are uh, at the time. And they're simpático. They they get along and they share the same political point of view. Anna presumably did not know it, but Marta Velazquez already was a recruited Cuban agent at that point. Her senior year uh, at Princeton as an undergrad, she'd gone to Cuba as part of her thesis and likely met Cuban intelligence officers, or they were at least aware of her at that time. Um, she was later indicted. It was It was secret for a while, but then released in, I think, 2013— so that's where we know this. She's not been convicted, but she has been indicted by the Justice Department. And it revealed that she had gone to Mexico City and she'd met with Cuban intelligence officers already by the, the point that she was in graduate school. Hmm. So the thought is that she was, her role was maybe kind of as a spotter mm-hmm. at that point to find new talent. And Anna is perfect. She's perfect for, for the, the Cubans. She's uh, a leftist. She can't stand the Reagan administration um, from Puerto Rico, which is important. There's a history of, of you know, leftism and a separatist movement sure. within Puerto Rico um, outspoken and bonus points she has a clearance, a security clearance. She's already at DOJ. Right. So put that all together, she was absolutely perfect for them and also spoke Spanish. Yeah. So Marta befriends her. I don't know if that was genuine or not, but she befriends her. They become inseparable. Uh, She met Ana's family. I have a photo of Marta at Sister Lucy's wedding shower. And she became part of the Montez crew. And then takes her in 1984 to New York on Amtrak and they go out for a meal and they meet a Cuban intelligence officer. And he makes his pitch and Ana is in. She agrees to spy on behalf of Cuba. Now, at the time, because of what was happening in Central America, the thought was that she was going to help them with El Salvador and Nicaragua, those conflicts, and helped the Cubans in that sense. Um, but she she, she, was fully, she was fully in. Ana and Marta in 1985 take a uh, trip to, uh, you know, call it, I don't mean this in a pejorative sense, but it's like a girl's trip. Mm-hmm. That's how they pose it as, to Cuba. And they go through first Spain and then Prague, And in each of those stops, they're meeting Cuban operatives who give them new fake passports, travel clothes, different travel clothes, and then a Cuban travels with them from Prague to Havana. Once in Havana, it's SPY 101 classes, and they learn how to communicate by shortwave radio, how to um, find out if someone is, is following you, Countermeasures um, and Anna asks, "I need to learn how to defeat a polygraph," and she's taught ways to defeat a polygraph, which comes in handy later. <laughs> and um, so they do this, and um, and they come back to the states, and then the Cubans at that point encourage her to apply to the DIA, the Defense Intelligence Agency, and other places. And ultimately, she's admitted into the DIA and begins her career.
0: You know, if people didn't realize it yet, from your description of how she was recruited, they would conclude correctly, the Cubans run a very good intelligence service. It's, it's really a world-class service, deep connections historically to the Soviet Union, KGB, that kind of thing. I mean, they must have just seen in her an absolute gold mine. I mean, does she? where does she rank to the extent that we know in terms of you know the best agents the Cubans had, was she really right up there at the top and one of the and one of the best people they had in the US government?
1: Definitely, yeah. She's she's at the at the top, if not the the top agent that they were, were running that we know of anyhow. Yeah. One of the clever things that they did, and I agree with you, Shane, they they really are good, right? Cuba's not militarily, they're not a threat at all to the United States, but in terms of their intelligence agencies, they're phenomenal very crafty. They don't spend a lot of money, mm-hmm. um, but they're they're really very competent what they do. One of the clever things uh, they did early on was to encourage Anna to write an autobiography, which Marta helped her with. I think Marta lent her her typewriter, <laughs> to tell you the era that we were in. But she writes out an autobiography, which is helpful in two counts. One, if Anna ever got cold feet, oh, we've got an autobiography, we could, we could share that. It would be very damaging mm. to provide to others. Number two, it's a, it's a roadmap of her life that the Cubans can use for years to manipulate her. And, and they did. They understood what buttons to push um, and how to keep her in the game and successful. Uh, and uh, you know, that was a very useful tactic for them.
0: And it seems like you know, she is someone who is... She's ideologically committed... Um, but maybe doesn't fully appreciate the degree to which she is just being very manipulated by, you know, look, I'm sure the Cuban intelligence service is also ideologically committed to its cause, but they're really using her in a way that she almost presented to me as somebody who was almost naive in her ideological commitments and maybe didn't fully understand the way that it was. Yeah, you may have this idea about helping, you know, the Sandinistas in Nicaragua, but the Cubans have their own agenda for you. Right. And that's nice that you have your opinions and your views, but they have plans for you and you're an asset.
1: Yeah, and, you know, her, her, it's interesting, her, her family believes that she was manipulated, but for that she probably would not have jumped in. I'm not sure, it's hard, you know, it's hard to assess that. Um, it is true probably that early on that is the case, but then you look at later in life, She knows exactly what she's doing. Later, she was helping on—she's a Cuba expert providing information on Cuba uh, from, you know, classified U.S. sources to Havana. Um, And, you know, I have letters that she wrote in prison much more recently. She has not—she is not apologetic. Mm -hmm. She has not changed her stripes at all. She continues to justify what she did— and why she spied. And so it's it's hard for me to see her as a naive person now. She may have been when she started, she was 27 years old. She may have been she maybe didn't real fully realize that this is a lifetime decision that she was making. And it's interesting we get to this later, but she fell in love with someone who and and at one point wanted to get out of the game and learn that she she couldn't
0: Hmm. I mean, she just seems incredibly tough. I mean, maybe this is the upbringing, maybe it's, you know, the, the abusive father, but this, this incredibly resilient person, too. Uh, you know, used her superpowers for bad, perhaps, but uh, she, she comes across that way, you know, as well. Um, when she starts spying for them and she's in DIA, talk about some of the things that she is giving them, particularly the things that are so damaging that she's providing to the Cubans.
1: You know, I make the argument that she's really one of the most dangerous women spies in U.S. history, but but, um, but also just one of the most damaging spies, period. And, you know, I'm, I'm basing this on a lot of experts in in the government who've shared this with me. Um, there are a couple of reasons why. Number one, she provided the real identities of Americans operating undercover in Havana. That's a dangerous yeah, game to play. Right. Uh, and blew their cover. One message that that the FBI recovered from her laptop, she uh, turned over the real name of someone, and the the Cuban said we were we were waiting for him with open arms. It's kind of you know kind of scary yeah um, it, the the American operative was not believed to have been harmed or imprisoned, but it clearly blew what whatever program we were running there, Sure. So she turned over those real names. She also revealed the names of everyday folks that were throughout the U.S. government working on anything having to do with Cuba. That could have been hundreds of names. That's helpful to Cuba. That's who they're going to go target. They need to know those folks. She also, I mean, just 17 years of downloading and then uploading classified documents, that's a lot. And she had... I was talking to a CIA officer who said she had much broader access than we would ever have had at CIA. She was given a lot of latitude to poke her nose in a lot of different areas. So she turned over just volumes and volumes of material to the Cubans. And then finally, she also revealed um, a program. It was a stealth satellite program. It went by the code name MISTI. And... It's a multi, it was a multi-billion-dollar program that the U.S. government had been using to successfully spy on Russia, China, Iran, all of our enemies, and also Cuba. She was read into it um, and immediately turned that information over to the Cubans. The fear was the Cubans sell or share information with the Russians and others, and it's believed that she blew that program and ruined the effective, effectiveness of this uh, stealth satellite. So put it all together, she she did a lot of damage in her nearly seventeen years.
0: Yeah, and and you you put your finger on this too. I think is really remarkable about her story is that she's not just staying in the one lane of what she works on at DIA. She's able to dip into all of these. Other buckets, including you know NRO satellite programs, that she knows things about and and is willing to basically share all of it. I mean, did you was there anything that she wasn't able to share? Or was she basically like I'm an open book for Cuba? Um, I'm not aware of anything that where she said this is too
1: sensitive, <laughs> right. and in fact, or give me more money or something. Right. Well, she 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 barely took any money. She took a couple grand in her 17 years. She it's was an, an ideological. Nice Spy. She took some money for expenses, basically. That was it. Um, no, I mean, flashing forward to the end of her career, right before she was arrested, she was brought in after 9-11 and uh, was given targeting information for Afghanistan. And she has said that she was willing to provide that information to the Cubans as well, which is obviously extremely Frightening. These are
0: targets the U.S. was going to bomb in Afghanistan to go after the Taliban and Al-Qaeda. Absolutely, right. And, um, you know, so if, 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 that is, if that is the
1: case, there really are no bounds for, for what she would not have provided.
0: She's able to do this for, you know, as you said, 17 years. Where along this timeline do authorities start to suspect they have a mole? When is the first inkling that there is someone who's providing information? The National Security
1: Agency, the NSA, um, realized in approximately 1998 that there was uh, a problem. Um, They had gained access and the ability to decode communications from the Cuban, shortwave radio communications from the Cubans to their handlers in the U.S. and provided those clues to the FBI in approximately 98. They were very specific. As an example, uh, there, were just, there was discussion of, quote, Agent S. That later turned out to be Montez. They knew Agent S had been in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, within a, uh, a, a several-week period. Um, and they turn, the NSA turned this over to the FBI, which, as you said, is the agency that uh, investigates and can arrest uh, spies in the US. Um, there was other very detailed information that they had shared. It was, it was first laid out at a big meeting with lots of FBI brass and NSA there. There's an NSA analyst who I interviewed. She's now retired. <clears throat> um, I created a pseudonym for her because she does not want her name used. Uh, and, and I call her Elena Valdez. Elena was at this first meeting when the FBI was briefed, and she walked away thinking, I've done my my duty. The FBI, the premier investigative agency in the U.S., has this, they're going to chase it. And, by the way, I didn't just say, there appears to be a spy within the U.S. intelligence community. I gave them really detailed clues. Put it together, they've got to be able to figure out who this is. More than two years goes by, And the FBI has really not gotten anywhere. They believe it's a man. Um, Their presumption, their hunch is that it's probably someone from the CIA. But they just have not moved the ball very much. And Elena, who's responsible for providing this information, is not getting any feedback whatsoever from the FBI. She's getting frustrated. And... She's kind of like a whistleblower type mentality, so she's pushing a lot more maybe than the average bear would. Mm-hmm. Um, at one point, someone from the Bureau tells her, it turns out erroneously, this case has been closed. And it may be that someone said that just to get, get her off, off of their back. Leave us alone. Stop calling. Yeah, but it's not true. The case was not closed. When she hears that and and realizes Two years has gone by, nothing's happening, the case is closed. I forgot to mention, Elena is Cuban-American. She was forced to leave Cuba as a six-year-old girl with her family. They resettled in Miami, and um, she can't stand the Cuban regime. So she's got a kind of personal motivation to try to figure this out, and she's a patriotic American working for the NSA. When she hears that the case supposedly is closed, she says to herself, "Not on my watch. I am going to pursue this." Somewhat um, coincidentally, she runs into some investigators from the DIA, where we later learn Anna actually is employed. The DIA had an intelligence capability and a pretty good unit that was looking at Cuba. Uh Elena never knew that before. She decides to go over there with a, the guys being, I want to meet and greet. I just I don't know much about DIA. I'm going to come with a couple of my people, show us around. Mm-hmm. She does that. And very briefly, she says to, um, uh, his name is Chris Simmons, who she was meeting with, you know, um, I'm actually not here for meet and greet. Can you find us a skiff? I got to tell you something. And pulls him aside. She's got a couple of her folks there and starts pulling out documents and says, I I, I am not here to go on a tour. I need to tell you what's going on with a a case that the FBI has had for a long time and is getting nowhere on. And she lays out a couple of the details. Chris uh, brings in his his boss. The boss gets uh, read in as well. And they realize there's very specific information here, and it seems to them like maybe this agent S, who's unidentified, maybe this person works in the military. They then involve a kind of, a you know, mole hunter within DIA. His name is Scott Carmichael. They bring Scott in. Scott has a couple of these clues. And he's punching them into his database. And in literally minutes, based on this, including the, uh, the fact that this spy has been to Gitmo, Gu- Guantanamo Bay, within a couple week period, Scott figures out that this has got to be Ana Montes. Her name flashes on, on his screen, along with other folks. Mm-hmm. He knew that name already. He had interviewed her several years earlier when a colleague of his had expressed some concern about her and how she was poking her nose into too many places and some other behavior that was suspicious. When he sees her name flashing on his computer screen, he said to himself, it's got to be her. Everything is coming together. Scott then works over the next few weeks with this NSA analyst completely behind the back of the FBI. They are not aware yeah. of this. And when they Really find off the books. Yeah. Off the books and when they find out about it they are furious. The, the FBI threatens to prosecute Elena for sharing this information. The NSA is not too pleased either. She's worried. Elena becomes worried she's going to be fired mm-hmm. or imprisoned. Mm-hmm. But The DIA and Scott Carmichael kind of work past that. They work with the FBI and convince the FBI that Ana Montez is the person.
0: Which which is convincing them that it's not whoever they might think it is. They have to also disabuse the FBI of the leads that they're already onto, essentially.
1: Including the fact they believed it was a man based on some of the NSA clues. And it's very rare for women to spy it's about 9% of all recent spy cases have been women. So Scott Carmichael is in meeting with the FBI trying to convince them that he's identified on his own this suspect. The FBI, at first, all they want to do is talk about the leak on this case, who knows too much about it, how did you learn about this, and they're, they're very angry at first. Ultimately— they, they work it out, um, they develop more clues, and the FBI becomes convinced to open first a preliminary investigation and then a full field investigation into Ana as a possible Cuban recruit.
0: And that's really the moment when, when, when you, whenever the FBI opens a full field investigation. That's what we think of, right, is sort of they're zeroing in on somebody. They might go get the FISA warrant like they did in her case to be able to surveil her, to monitor her. Um, so talk a little bit about her family in this period too because as you mentioned when we first heard it out you know th- th- there's a strong law enforcement <laughs> contingent that is running through this family uh, that has amidst their ranks this you know uh, then undiscovered uh, uh, inc- extraordinary spy so talk about uh, her siblings the
1: amazing thing to me and I you know I've been really researching this for about 15 years, but as I was working on the book, I figured out the timing of all this. Anna goes to New York on that trip that I mentioned to meet the Cuban intelligence officer and it's late 84 and she decides I'm gonna help the Cubans. Weeks later, one to two weeks later, Sister Lucy was working selling women's blouses at Hex in the Baltimore area. Mm-hmm. Old department store, not not around anymore. Right. She gets into an argument with her dad. She's living with her father. She gets into an argument, and she says, I got to get out of here. I got to find something else. She looks in the paper and sees a classified ad for translators. She's like, well, I speak Spanish. I speak English. Um, And it's for the FBI. She applies, and she is accepted. The FBI says, we have a job for you, but it's in Miami. She says, I'm going to take it. So excited, I can't wait to tell Anna. Now, remember, at the time, <laughs> Anna's working in the Justice Department. So these are sister agencies. Right. And so Lucy, comma, previously selling women's blouses, now calls her sister to say, I've got great news. I just got hired by the FBI. Anna is almost catatonic when she hears this news. She tells Lucy, "This is a horrible idea. I don't like the guys I've met at the FBI. I really don't think this is a good plan for you." And Lucy was just confused by it. Why it's, this is a great movie. Happy me. for me. Why aren't you happy for me? She could not understand it. So within you know just a week or two of Anna deciding to spy, her little sister all of a sudden is going to join the FBI and she does. She becomes a translator with the FBI based in Miami. Miami, the Miami field office is the main place where the FBI is looking for Cuban spies. So it was not, it was not a happy coincidence for Anna.
0: Yeah. And, she, and, she, and she's really, I mean, she's, to put it plainly, I mean, nervous that her sister is crossing into the domain in which she is spying. Correct. I mean, she's fearful of the idea that, you know, her sister could eventually be part of an organization that starts hunting her, I guess. Right, right.
1: Then Lucy's there. She's working on—it's, you know, Florida in the 80s. It was almost all drug cases, cocaine cases. That's what she's working on. Very
0: much the Miami Vice kind of— Absolutely. uh, But she meets a guy—
1: there, who also is at the FBI, and they—they they, they, his name is Chris, they get married. So now you've got two family members in the FBI. A couple years go by, Lucy's really doing well at her, at her job, and she hears that the FBI is doing a lot of recruiting, and they're looking for, especially for minority candidates. She thinks of her sister-in-law, Joan, uh, who was Korean-American and was working at Uh, kind of a dead-end job in Pennsylvania, really bright woman. She calls Joan and says, would you ever be interested in becoming an FBI special agent? They may be interested in you. Joan thinks for about about three seconds and says, absolutely, that sounds great. (laughs) Joan goes to tell her husband, who is, his name is Tito, that is Anna and Lucy's brother. Tito at the time is in seminary. Tito is preparing to become a priest. Joan goes to him and says, I'm going to apply to be an FBI agent. Well, what do you think? And, and he says, well, I think it's great for you, but guess what? I don't want to be a priest anymore. I want to be an FBI agent. So, And they do. They ultimately b- both become FBI special agents. They're based in Atlanta. So within a, a couple of years, very coincidentally, Anna has a, a brother— and a sister-in-law who are FBI special agents, a sister who's an FBI translator, and a brother-in-law also working for the FBI. Four family members in no time at all.
0: You know, and it's ama- and it's an amazing thing. I mean, it, obviously, you know, Ana has made decisions that you know. I think her family has actually been out with a statement. This as recently as this week or last last couple of weeks, saying you mm-hmm. know she it was treasonous what she did. But she grew up in a household in which clearly there was a strong sense of, of right and wrong. Obviously, discipline in the extreme that went into the abusive area. But I mean, what do you think about? I mean, is there? I mean, is it? Could you class, like take these siblings and say they were all very much committed to what their idea of the right thing to do was? I mean, those are the kinds of people that you know go into government. I mean, and Anna on paper, I mean, was perfect for you know a, a role in, in, in at, at DIA or a DOJ where where she starts out. And there's kind of an ideological uh, commitment, uh, a belief that seems to run very strongly in that family. In Anna's case, it went obviously in a very different direction.
1: Virtually the entire family was employed by the government. Yeah. Uh, the fathers in the army. Uh, then he went into private practice, uh, ironically, as a Freudian psychiatrist. But <laughs> <laughs> um, the mother worked for the IRS and, I believe, Social Security. So she was, um, uh, she was w- with the government. And then Tito and Joan and, and Lucy. They're all working for the U.S. government. What Lucy says, because, look, these these kids are all raised by this the same father the, you know many of the same impressions of this this very difficult father. But Lucy says, "Look, I I'm loyal. I love the United States. I'm patriotic. Uh, I have problems. With, I had problems with my father as well, although I I, I love him. I didn't end up as a spy. Mm-hmm. So this is something within Anna. It's a combination of factors. It's politics. It's personal." Um, it it's, it's who she is and how she decided to react to this, to what she thought was the atrocities of the Reagan administration and probably, you know, subconsciously a reaction against her father. But she made a decision that is obviously very different from what her siblings decided to do and how they reacted to the stress of, of growing up with a— a difficult, abusive father.
0: It's and she's such a contrast too, To you know, a, a spy. Really, one of her contemporaries. mean, Robert Hansen, who was ultimately you know arrested not much longer after Anna is arrested. Um, who you know wanted more money from his Soviet handlers, wanted respect. I mean, it was this incredible you know narcissist and very insecure in so many ways. Um, but she she just strikes me as such an interesting contrast than in him. Uh, opposed to him like, around, around the same time, somebody who was clearly not doing it for the money. Um, how much was it important to her that she had the respect of her handlers and that they thought she was doing a good job?
1: Very. Um, she didn't want to be thought of as, you know, like a messenger woman, basically. Um, she wanted to be treated with respect. She was a high-ranking analyst on the U.S. side, and she wanted that same respect. And the Cubans... Uh, gave it to her. They gave her a lot more latitude that they probably would have with, um, with other spies. And as I said, she was very analytical in what she presented to them and was just super helpful um, in, you know, in many times in, in the history of the relations between Cuba and America in her, um, you know, in her, in her time of spying, she was extremely helpful.
0: When did you become aware of her story? Was it when you were working as a journalist and 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 you know covering law enforcement and when when does she pop on your radar? Um I heard about Ana Montes
1: when she was arrested on September 21st, 2001. At the time I was a producer at NBC News, um teamed with Pete Williams and we were covering 9/11. That was our job and it was a chaotic, busy, scary moment, as you, as you recall, Shane. And I remember reading about the arrest and just thinking, uh, we just don't have the bandwidth to do it, and it was a little off topic. Yeah. As interesting as a Cuban spy is. Uh, about a week later, a college roommate and buddy of mine called and said, did you see the Ana Montez arrest? And I said, yeah, yeah. And I go, why are you mention that? And he goes, she bought my condo. <laughs> and I realized that I had spent an enormous amount of time in that apartment uh, in the Cleveland Park area on Macomb Street in Washington. Mm-hmm. And he, uh, my friend John, had sold it to Anna. Um, it, it just, it, it made a connection for me. Mm-hmm. And um, it stayed with me. A couple years later, I decided to reach out to the investigators and to the FBI uh, about this. And through that process, I met Lucy Montez, who was still at the FBI at the time and was, you know, gracious enough to talk to me. She had not talked to any reporters and give me an interview. And I assembled all that and I wrote a long piece for the Washington Post magazine that came out in 2013. The now late great yes. Washington Post magazine. Yes, R.I.P.
0: Yeah. Well, why do you think that she decided to talk to you? Why did Lucy trust you with that story? When I imagine there were probably other journalists who who tried to get to her, and she's still in the government. She's still in the government. Yeah, um, I think my timing was good. It'd,
1: several years had passed uh, since the arrest. Um, Lucy, uh, you know. She really she channeled her anger mm. about this case through me and through the article. Mm-hmm. She said some pretty rough things about Anna in this article, yeah. and she wanted Anna to read what she had to say about her. Uh, one of the things that Lucy shared was a letter that she wrote to Anna in prison. And basically, what happened was after the arrest, the family was so upset, but they realized well, why pile on? We're not going to. We're not going to beat her up over it. She pled guilty. And, you know, we they let her know how they felt, but they they didn't try to make her feel horrible about it. Lucy waited and kind of held her tongue for a long time. But they got into an argument once when Anna um, criticized Lucy for not being nice enough to their mother. And she she said, Anna from prison said to Lucy, You should probably see a shrink for your Anger management issues. Well, that was it. Just not our dad. (laughs) That was it. And Lucy just thought, that is too much. Now I'm going to tell her how I feel. And she wrote her a letter that really expressed her anger. And she shared that with me. And and I reported on it. And so I think that was it. The, The timing was good. But Lucy Montez wanted the world to know, my sister did something horrible. Let's not let that define who we are, our family. Our family is full of really successful doctors and, and patriotic Americans, and I don't want the rest of the world to think that Ana Montez should define who we are.
0: So you, so you find out about her story, obviously, when you're, you're, you're at NBC and it's this incredibly busy time. Um, how did you get into journalism? And Were you always covering law enforcement and, and, and those kinds of issues? Where'd, where'd you start out? Um, I got into journalism, I
1: went to uh, Northwestern, took, started taking some classes at Medill and just fell in love with it.
0: Pretty good journalism school. Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> and uh, um, I had al- always loved writing, but didn't really know that much about journalism and uh, jumped right in. Um, I'm from beautiful Trenton, New Jersey. Mm-hmm. I moved home after school and talked my way into a job at the Trenton Times. Nice and uh, was off to the races. But uh, when I moved to Washington, I worked for U.S. News and World Report, and I started covering law enforcement there. And then once I was at NBC, that was the full-time gig, is covering justice, FBI, and a little bit the Supreme Court as well.
0: Yeah, and for people who don't know, I mean, you mentioned Pete Williams, who uh, you know, uh, recently retired, really one of the most beloved reporters on the criminal justice, FBI, DOJ, beat, but did it a long, long time. What does a producer do for people who don't understand that relationship between a kind of a reporter, correspondent, somebody who's on the air like Pete was? And, and w- w- what was your role in that partnership? Uh, I'll tell you what typically it is, and then
1: I'll tell you what it is with Pete Williams. Okay. Typically, the producer really is the the reporter In, you know, if there's if you're teamed with a producer and a correspondent, many times the producer is really the frontline reporter who learns the news and chases interviews and and assembles stories. Uh, Pete is so incredible at what he does and really a perfectionist, too, that he did a lot of the work that a typical producer (laughs) would do, (laughs) um, which made working for him you know just a total pleasure yeah um but having said that i had covered the fbi a lot yeah i had my own sources so i was i was you know very much like a frontline person for nbc news which was the primarily reported for the nightly news the today show and msnbc on the biggest story ever the 9-11 attacks and um you know, it was just an incredible and stressful period.
0: Yeah. What, what, what do you remember about uh, uh, where
1: you were on 9-11? Uh, remember it like it was yesterday. I was in the backyard talking to a contractor, and my <laughs> uh, my wife ran outside <laughs> and told me what had happened. And I went running into the bureau. Mm-hmm. Pete is from Wyoming, and he was hiking in the a very remote area is of Wyoming. Is that right? Yes. I didn't know that and uh it took him about 24 hours to even to come up for air and realize what had happened wow and so that put me in a you know in an even more important position because i had the contacts with the fbi i don't know if you remember this at the time but you know normally you can call into the fbi they have a press office we all knew the the spokespeople worked there after 9-11 the phones were a total disaster you couldn't use the th- the phones. Yeah, to just call impossible the FBI. to make a call. I I set up camp at the Aubon Pan on Tenth Street, right across from the FBI. I had my laptop there, and that was my office. The uh, it's like a cliche, I guess, with the FBI going in to buy uh, donuts every day. <laughs> yeah, and right. right. Uh, I got so much information from FBI officials going in there to grab coffee, and I would. I would talk to them there and developed a lot of information Yeah, um, and, you know, obviously had other sources that, that I could call. But um, it was it was, you know, as, as chaotic as it was on the news side, it was obviously much worse on the law enforcement side trying to figure out what had happened. Will there be another attack? Uh, uh, are there other folks who were still here um, who were involved and you know it was the clearly the you know the biggest investigation in the FBI history at that time.
0: And you covered the anthrax uh, attacks and investigation too, right, Correct. which was another huge uh, uh, story. Yes, the
1: anthrax attacks and then the DC sniper it all happened around the same time.
0: It is looking back on that it's extraordinary that all three of those things were happening pretty much simultaneously, at least in terms of the FBI investigation, but even in the case of the anthrax and the sniper attacks. I mean, it not was, knowing who the culprits were for quite some time. It, it was stressful to live in D.C. Yeah, at no, that it really time. was. Yeah. I People mean, were afraid to stop at gas stations and yeah. open mail
1: and... Right, and you know, of course, the Pentagon was attacked yeah. on 9/11, and and uh, and then you have the you know the snipers and the anthrax. It was it was a lot. I have a friend who moved, sold his house right in that period, moved to Vermont, never came back. Forget it. Just Get <laughs> out of here. Yeah,
0: yeah. Well, and there's an interesting kind of 9/11 connection, uh, I suppose, uh, in Ana Montes' case, when we talked about how she had access to the targets that the military might use to attack in Afghanistan and al-Qaeda. Um, and and that tell the story because that ends up actually lighting a fire that leads pretty quickly to, to her arrest. So she was
1: allowed to stay in place at the DIA. And the I they, they knew who she was at that point. Correct. She's under investigation and, you know, a key piece of evidence, as you said, the FBI gets special approval from the... Um, FISA court, Foreign Surveillance at court, to do a surreptitious entry into her apartment in May of 2001. And when they do, they find these communications on her laptop to and from the Cubans. And that really, that, that is what convicted her yeah. ultimately. So the FBI, and in turn, some people, limited people within the DIA, know about this investigation and they know that they have a Cuban spy working at DIA. To his credit, the then director of DIA, Admiral Thomas Wilson, decides, I'm going to keep her in place to assist the FBI because the FBI wants, ideally, to find her meeting with the Cubans, passing a document. That would be much more incriminating than what what they had. And Wilson says, okay, I'm going to allow this to happen, but report to me frequently and let me know how it's going. Then 9-11 happens. And by the way, Admiral Wilson is in the Pentagon. Here's the plane going, going by. And DIA employees are killed on that day. So this is both very personal for him, but if you run the DIA and uh, our nation is at war, of course, um, with, uh, and, and about to bomb Afghanistan, And you run the DIA, that's your job. Your job is now to direct and tell the Pentagon where to bomb, how to bomb, that kind of thing, uh, and provide military intelligence. So this is a very, very busy guy. Um, He immediately realizes, we got to get Ana Montez out of here. And there are folks behind the scenes, because Ana was held in such high regard, she is, is promoted And now she's put on a task force where she's going to be given access to our bombing targets in Afghanistan. And that was done by people who had no idea she was under investigation. Wilson learns about this. He learns that she's on this task force and that she's going to get this classified information on where we're going to bomb. And he's worried that she's going to turn it over to the Cubans. And who knows, maybe the Cubans will then sell it or give it to the Taliban. Mm-hmm. It was a big concern. So he goes to the FBI and says, guys, time's up. She needs to be arrested or fired. We have to get her out. I can't handle having a Cuban spy while I'm also dealing with this. So he, he communicates that to the FBI, and they agree, and they decide it's going to be Friday, September 21st. She's going to be arrested and they put a plan together to arrest her at the DIA that day.
0: And it's a fairly dramatic scene, too, where they, 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 they have, you know, oxygen tanks standing by and, like, a nurse, right? Because right. they're worried if she has some kind of—if she faints, if she has some kind of attack. Uh, but she is just cool as a cucumber. She is indeed. Uh, they, they come up with a
1: ruse. They bring her down to the inspector general's office supposedly to look into a problem with an employee. And they usher her into a conference room, and they're waiting for her, the two FBI case agents. And they introduce themselves. And they had a whole script where they were going to try to get her to talk and confess. And she was having none of it. She's a pretty sharp cookie. <laughs> Didn't buy it and, uh, and asked for a lawyer. And she did. She, did, she kind of blanched. and She showed signs of a rash uh, during this. She was obviously nervous. But she stood up and walked out of there, no problem whatsoever, with a lot of confidence. And they did. They had a nurse and CPR equipment waiting, and they didn't have to use any of it.
0: It's amazing. It, it, it's such a contrast to what we think of as, you know, the, the moment with the FBI barges in with the guns and puts you under arrest, that it almost sounds polite. <laughs> the way they I just totally so. right? said. They,
1: they had a whole plan, and um, Steve McCoy, who was the lead case agent, said, it just, uh, it, it, it fell apart. It just didn't work at all.
0: Amazing. So so she'll be getting out, you know, uh, on Friday. So by the time people hear this, she'll presumably have have been out for, you know, uh, a little under a week. Um, what does she do now? I mean, she's been in jail 21 years, in prison 21 years. Uh, what does life look like for Ana Montes after she walks out of that federal prison?
1: Well, first of all, she'll be on probation for five years under pretty tight, restrictions, probation right. officer, checks of her computer usage, yeah. no contact with uh, foreign agents, that sort of thing. Um, <clears throat> she will likely move to Puerto Rico, where she has family, sympathetic family, and kind of reboot, and get her life together. She does want to reunite with her mother. She's very close with her mother, who lives in southern Florida. So she, the family wants to put that together in a, in a safe environment. Yeah. Um, But I think that she's going to be pretty quiet. She does not want to violate her agreement and return to prison. Mm. Say what you will about her crime. She has done hard time. Mm -hmm. Uh, She's lived in this prison within a prison called the Admin Unit within Carswell in Texas. It is a prison reserved for the most dangerous women in America— She lived close to Squeaky Fromm of Manson family fame, who tried to assassinate President Ford, uh, an Al Qaeda terrorist who shot at FBI agents, a nurse who killed a number of patients uh, using adrenaline, um, basically a serial murderer. Um, And her one friend in prison was a woman named Lisa Montgomery, who committed a ghastly, ghastly murder. Um, to steal a baby and was executed uh, during the Trump administration. And that was her closest friend in prison. And I just say all that just to mention that her life and her situation was very, very difficult. She described it as living in an insane asylum Mm -hmm. for essentially two decades. I don't think she's going to do anything to jeopardize her, her freedom, her liberty and Puerto Rico or wherever she is to have to go back there.
0: Will you try to interview her?
1: I will make an attempt, but um, she's under a lot of restrictions. She would have to get the approval of both the FBI and DIA to do any kind of an interview. And uh, based on what I've read from her prison letter,
0: she's, she's not a big fan of my work so <laughs> far. <laughs> um, explain why she wasn't given a life sentence. She was eligible for
1: the death penalty. It, she's you know a traitor, um, but she she cut a very good deal uh, with the government, and she had a good lawyer, Plato Kaccharis,
0: quite quite skilled defense attorney.
1: They um, they negotiated a 25 year sentence for her. Um, she's will have done t- approximately 21 years when she gets out. But I think the government, the Justice Department, thought. Uh, Let's go for the sure thing here. It's a woman. She's in D.C. Who knows what will happen with the jury? They never found her giving a document or meeting with a Cuban. So the most incriminating evidence that they had was what was on her laptop. Mm. And, you know, that I I do think that it was very incriminating. But I just don't think they wanted to risk uh, a trial. And also, anytime you go to trial, you have to expose you know, by nature, you run the risk of exposing yeah. a lot of classified information. So they agreed on a deal, a 25-year deal. I think she got a good deal because if you look at Robert Hansen, the FBI, uh, Russian spy, uh, Rick Ames, who was at CIA, or even Kendall Myers, who was a, a State Department employee and a Cuban spy, they all got life terms. They're, they're in supermax. Anna got a 25-year sentence out after 21 years and three months for good behavior, she's 65 years old. She can have a, a long, you know, productive life.
0: Was part of it, I mean, was was there thinking that, you know, Hansen, the information he provided led to the execution, capture and execution of a number of people in the Soviet Union. Was there a sense that as bad as what Ana Montes did, it didn't rise to the level of Hansen who, you know, basically decided or agreed to tell everything he knew in exchange for not getting the death penalty. I mean, it was a, you know, basically tell us everything and we'll let you live.
1: I think so. I think I think that's the case. Um, look, also, with Anna, she had to agree to cooperate yeah. with the government. And she
0: was debriefed for months and months by every agency you can imagine. Which must have been like, it must have, that must have just... Been actually quite hard for her, considering her ideological commitment to spy, because she objected to U.S. government policy. It was policy. E- it was excruciating for her. Uh, she hated the process. She was
1: difficult to deal with. Um, the FBI agents who had to accompany her said she was extremely unpleasant. <laughs> um, but she she provided enough information to check the boxes. Uh, Very few people think that she revealed everything that she knew. um, But she provided enough to satisfy her deal with the government. Is there a
0: chance that she could try to go to Cuba
1: and live out her days there? She could. um, I I, I would be very surprised. She has has family here. Sure. and uh, that's, that's a one-way
0: ticket. Right. I mean, she would never come back. But is, is there? do you have any sense of whether or not the Cuban government, you know, now that she's out, will, and she'll be expect to hear a, a communique from them, uh, reminding everybody what a great job she did for them and how proud they are of her work? They did after, uh, after she was uh, sentenced,
1: they, and it's very rare for them to even acknowledge any government to acknowledge <laughs> right. anyone who spied for them, <laughs> they gave her a shout out essentially afterwards, which was unusual. Uh, we've not heard much from the Cubans about Ana. Uh, it, it, there, there is support among um, the Cub- some Cuban people and also some folks in Puerto Rico um, who you know who believe in her cause, who have been very supportive. And there are all kinds of Facebook affinity pages. Yeah, for, yeah.
0: yeah. There are people online who still, I mean, really, I mean, argue for her as being, you know, essentially... A, like a political prisoner. Yeah, a political prisoner, exactly, yeah. that what she did was righteous. Mm-hmm. I mean, but it will be, I mean, because she is, you know, so relatively young, um, it will be fascinating if she actually does speak that we have a convicted, very high-level successful spy who is now free and out in the public. You know, you can't get interviews with Robert Hansen. Right. Uh, you know, he's essentially in a cage. Um, that's going to be really, really unusual, isn't it?
1: It will be. And, uh, I mean, she has said that she doesn't have an interest in that right now. but We'll see. Yeah, we'll see. And also, after five years, once her probation is over, I think, you know, maybe she'll feel a little more free to
0: speak at that point. Right. Safe to say she will not be getting a security clearance again I or coming to work for think the US so. government. I don't <laughs> think so. <laughs> uh, uh, what was the thing that surprised you the most in researching this book? Because I mean, you've been a journalist for a long, long time. You've been digging into this story, like you said, for 15 years. Was there something that you came away with that was either surprising to you or was sort of the big you know, takeaway in your mind in all of this?
1: I guess the biggest surprise for me was the NSA role in mm. this. Um, I, I mentioned Scott Carmichael, who was at, at DIA. Scott wrote a book about this um, sh- short, a couple years after Anna pled guilty. And he mentioned in it a character that he called Big Mouth, who played an early role in providing some information. It never said the NSA. No one ever talked about NSA. And in researching the book, I realized that NSA played such a big role. And then this woman, Elena, a Cuban-American, was really a linchpin in this and pushing the case forward, riding the FBI, going behind their back to another agency to push, 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 make sure this case did not get forgotten. And always kept in mind, there's, there's someone out there who is in the U.S. government, who's providing information to Cuba. And she just would not stop until she figured that out. That was the biggest discovery for me.
0: Um, well, it is our tradition here on Chatter that the last question to our guest, I reach in here to the Chatter box and wow. ask you a pre-selected question at random. So this is like, this is this is our version of like, you know, the Freudian psychology here. Uh, Ah, this is actually very on topic. Tell us your favorite or least favorite uh, spy or political thriller movie or TV show. Oh, OK, love it.
1: Um, I've got to go with All the President's Men.
0: Ah, it's
1: great. It's a, uh, maybe it's a cliche for a journalist, but it it really, it inspired me, the whole story did. But I, I, I just fell for it hook, line, and sinker. Yeah. Um Have had, you know, the privilege to meet Bob Woodward um and I, I I love I love the look and feel of that movie and I love the the respect with which it shows the reporting process mm-hmm. and uh, it, it it had a very big impact on me as a as a young guy
0: is that when is that something that made you want to become a journalist um I'm trying to think when that came out it it I, I was like 70s Five, it would have come out, I and mean, then maybe maybe later, maybe seventy-six. Yeah,
1: it it definitely it played a role for yeah. sure. Um, it feels a little cheesy saying it, but I think there's probably a a, a big generation oh, of, of journalists who who got into this line of business because of that.
0: You know what's amazing to me about that movie too, and I agree with that, I, I love it, and I, I usually end up watching it again like once a year. Um, There are so few movies about journalism that actually get it right about what reporting is and what editing and writing is. And that absolutely got it. I mean, it, it's, I mean, no surprise. I mean, Woodward and Bernstein cooperated, I mean, famously down to, like, the newsroom Robert Redford made of the replica. That is what the old Washington Post newsroom looked like. But it really is striking to me. I don't know about to you, but just how few movies about journalism get it right. It's the same thing with movies about intelligence, actually. There's so yeah. few movies that actually get mm-hmm. it right. There's an idea of what the reporter is and what he or she does that is just so often not really how it works.
1: The other one uh, that I think there's a parallel is, is Spotlight. Um, yes, absolutely. Yeah, where it's it's the process, the iterative process of journalism. You you kind of see the ups and downs and the chance that is part of it uh, as as well. And I, I experienced that in in writing this book. You just you know sometimes you call people blind. You you have no idea if they're going to pick up, if they're going to cooperate, and there's a little sales job that goes into getting people to talk to you and to open up. And that discovery, the chase is unbelievable. That's what I love about journalism.
0: Yeah. And you worked in print and in TV. I mean, How how different is, let's take TV journalism just as a thought here to close on. How different is TV journalism than when you were working at NBC and covering 9-11 and these stories? How much of it's changed? Um, I don't know if it's changed all that much, but what I... I went from print
1: to TV. It's so much more collaborative in TV. Mm. At, which it kind of has it, to be, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, which can be really nice. There's dozens of people working on uh, a story versus yeah. print. It's generally you and your editor, and that's right. And that's it. There's something nice about that, too, the yeah, yeah. pride true. of ownership. But it's true. Uh, I love the, the team aspect um, of of broadcast journalism. It was terrific.
0: Yeah. Is there another book in you, do you think?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. But I don't know what it is yet. <laughs> but I did learn I I you know, I I loved loved the process, uh, the 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 reporting probably more than the writing, but I yeah. didn't like the writing. And um, yeah, I absolutely want to do it again.
0: That's great. Well, Jim Popkin, congratulations. It's a great read. It, it really is a terrific book, Codename Blue Run. People should check it out. You can now buy it everywhere books are sold. Um, it's a fascinating story. I hope that Ana Montes will actually talk to you maybe at some point. It would be amazing. Uh, but thanks for coming on the show and talking to us about this uh, this great spy caper, which uh, has more chapters ahead, it looks like. So we will see.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much. Just absolutely enjoyed it, Shane. Great.
0: Thanks for coming on. That Was Chatter, a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo. Please subscribe to the podcast and find us on Twitter at That Was Chatter.